And welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country, uh, now internationally as well, and our podcast audience, of course, all of our listeners here. It is Christmas Day live here on the show, if you're listening live through CIUT uh, or possibly through a, a streamer. Uh, if not, this is our uh, Christmas Day show, so I'm a bit tired, but I'm, a, I'm awake, I'm here, and you know who else is awake in here and seems much more awake than me is both Kevin Farmer and M.A. Ma, which is great. Thank you both for coming in. I know Kevin's got his hands free right now, but uh, thank you for joining me, M.A., who's uh, available. Yeah, great to be here. You might have to qualify what awake actually means. Though. Ah, I did have good. a good, strong cup of coffee. <laughs> well, I've got, uh, uh, regardless of your, your awakeness, I do still have, uh, uh, whether ours or yours, the listener, uh, we do have uh, a very sort of relaxed show. I have a, a, a trend now, as, as many people know, because I, I don't go very long without mentioning it. We've been on the air since 2006. Uh, since I've been involved uh with sort of running the show we've we've had a semi-tradition that's really started to solidify in the last sort of three years here um of really taking a very relaxed attitude towards our uh approximately christmas day and approximately new year's day show this year they actually do fall literally on christmas day and new year's day uh but because of that i don't get too worked up about trying to you know book guests is impossible and you know there's so much going on so I always take this as an opportunity to have a little bit of fun. So last year what, we did, what I did was I was actually here pretty much alone. I think Kevin might have been uh, teching for me or possibly not actually. Um, but I just played a bunch of clips from a bunch of revolutionary movies because I was in a, a bit of a revolutionary mood. But this year I'm in a very thoughtful, pondering mood. So what we're going to do is I've pulled up here and with the assistance of uh, Kevin and M.A., um, a number of top 10 lists um, to look at. And, and these, are, these are not necessarily environment uh, t- top 10 lists. In fact, none of them are explicitly, zero of them are explicitly environment top 10 lists. Uh, I've got things here like the top 10 news stories, top 10 Internet of Things stories, top 10 entertainment stories, top 10 IT security stories, top 10 science news stories. And what we're just going to be doing is kind of, I'm not really even going to go through them necessarily or, or talk too much about the stories that are on them, but we're just going to sort of talk about what happened this year in general and sort of, what happened this year might could lead to uh, next year. So what sort of things should we be keeping an eye on? What sort of trends can we assess from the year of 2015? Uh, I am someone who's a very big fan of round numbers. Uh, I think it has a little bit to do with uh, being a bit obsessive compulsive. Um, But I love this idea, 2015. It sounds great. I'm I'm as excited about the close of this year as I was about hitting the 2000s personally. Um, So it seems important. And uh, so I think a moment of reflection is due. Uh, what I'm going to do here, maybe we can start with this one, because Emma, you said that you it had occurred to you, you've been thinking about it recently as well. Uh, so one of the ones here was, uh, uh, the, one of the most fun is the Scientific American um, Top 10 Science Stories. And of course, one of the stories, which I which is their number 10 here, uh, but I hadn't even thought of, because it seems like so much has happened, uh, was the Ebola outbreak. I forgot that that was this year. Um, but one of the things I wanted to pull from that, and then I'll, I'll throw to Emma uh, to you for comments uh, as well. But you know, when I when Ebola being not specific, so just the idea of sort of global disease, and we had SARS a few years ago, and a few other things, um, and that one of the things you know people will say, well, you know, we have all these advances in technology, but these advances in technology and health sciences specifically. Uh, you know, it seems like we can never win. Will there ever be an end to disease? And and one of the things there that I that I like to identify um, as a factor was that one of the things is that you know if we're thinking about and it comes down to a worldview thing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I mean, because when we think of ourselves as sort of the master of this planet, we think of you know diseases as these pesky things that you know nip at our heels and and once in a while they they take us down. But generally speaking, we are mighty and they are you know bugs. 
Um, but you know, I think if you look at it from sort of a from an ecosystem point of view or from a health sciences point of view, um, we are just food for them, and size is rel- is irrelevant. And with things like overpopulation and crowding and poor sanitation, uh, we're essentially creating buffets for bugs and viruses and bacteria and. Uh, that's why so when we have sort of these increasingly impoverished people living in increasingly dense sort of urban centers, we're essentially creating a perfect storm for these types of things. Um, and it's probably only going to increase. And I, I guess what I find confusing is why people seem confused when we have these like, oh, why is it? Why does it seem so bad? And is it the, the, the fault of air travel maybe uh, and to a certain degree it is because people can move around you know in very complicated things but uh, it's just kind of the world we live in and it's going to get worse and I think we should think about that I've talked long enough (laughs) so when when I was thinking about Ebola actually I was thinking about it from a slightly different lens though you've touched on it a little bit Darren the thing that springs into my mind is inequality and if you look at what Ebola illuminated as a global health crisis this year is one, under-resourced health systems in low-income countries, right? The fact that it could tear tear through um, communities in these countries in a way that took a lot of lives, devastated families, um, and that countries did not have a lot of immediate recourse. They're, they really needed to reach out for international help. Um, but you also need to look at who got treated first. Mm. And, you know, these are complex public policy decisions in terms of who gets a vaccine, for example, and when, and is it rolled out as a national program, and what are the resourcing implications. But fundamentally, I can't help but rest my mind on the fact that the people who who contracted Ebola, um, who got the treatment that was life-saving, first and foremost, were were largely Western people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There weren't people in the community in Sierra Leone, for example. And it just goes to show that we live in a world where some lives, sad to say it, seem to matter more than others. And like I said, I'm not trying to oversimplify what happened, but we really do need to rest our minds on that. And we need to always be looking at how we close that gap. Why is it the case that when you have um, a potential treatment to be rolled out, um, that resources really play into who gets it and who doesn't at the end of the day. And so so Ebola treatment is being rolled out. But what we need to look at is what are the inequalities that it reveals in this whole this whole journey that we've gone through with Ebola. Mm. And I, I think that the theme there um, that, that I'm trying to draw and that I'm and that I'm going to draw through sort of basically the entire rest of the show, which was if we look at this problem, uh, and this is just one example, but if we look at this problem as a problem of here's a bunch of countries and it's complicated because, you know, our relationships are complicated and maybe not everybody's friends and, you know, this and that and should we help and blah, 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 and a bunch of sort of competing interests and it, and it gets very complicated. As you said, it gets very complicated. Um, and I will submit this as piece of evidence number one. Uh, among many, and we'll go to Kevin. Maybe he can arbitrate uh, if he thinks this is a fair submission of evidence uh, that you know we are, we already have climate change on the list. This is piece of evidence number two. Let's call it um, of a type of problem that threatens us all because um, 
you know, as that what was the immediate news story in the U.S. was, oh, no, there might be a doctor who might have come back to the U.S. with Ebola. That was all the news coverage. Whereas maybe if we start thinking about this problem as we are now uh, of a species that has, you know, de facto control of the planet to the extent that we understand control of things um, and we have global impacts and things we do are now going to affect globally. So we like we don't get to pretend like we have small little footprints anymore. Um, and we're going to be forced to work as a team if we're going to solve these problems. And, and Kevin's comment, I think, will be, well, we don't necessarily have any – we're not necessarily going to solve the problems. Uh, but just the idea – so I, just, I submit it to you, Kevin, uh, that this is, this is a piece of evidence number two, at least on this show uh, today, that things like global health outbreaks and stuff like that are, are going to contribute to a changing world or, or, or are going to need to to save us um, – that we need to start operating like a single planet because are the impacts that we're causing that affect us, that are putting us in danger, are acting as, a, as an entire planet. Oh, hi, everyone. Uh, I just got to check my mic. You sound <laughs> good, buddy. Oh, good, good. I just got to check the levels. Uh, the uh, connection between uh, the environment and Ebola, at least the outbreak in West Africa, might be a little more, a little more immediate than all of that. Uh, it's been uh, hypothesized, even by the French uh, environment minister, uh, that deforestation destroyed the habitat of fruit bats and they're known to carry Ebola. And by destroying their habitat, uh, they were, they were highly motivated or driven really to encroach on, on human, uh, settlements, human, human, uh, human presence. And that might very well have been what, what sparked the outbreak and whether it did or it didn't, it's still an object lesson in, in the fact that, um, the really nature, nature is full of survival strategies that worked and and we we have yet to we have yet to demonstrate that our approach the 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 industrial industrial civilization is a survival strategy that's going to work and the thing you can say about nature you can say a lot of things about nature but it exists in balance and we are fundamentally upsetting that balance and things like deforestation uh linking ecosystems that never used to be linked before driving roads through pristine forests things like that like all of these things they add up they certainly do and your comment about you know, we are the size of our footprint. It, we're huge. We're, we're just huge. Like individually, it, does, it just doesn't seem like much. But you've got to multiply what you do by 7 billion or, or take, take if you want to do a little bit of math, decide for yourself what, what a sustainable footprint is and then for humanity and then divide that by 7 billion and then revise that quickly because it's going to be 9 billion by 2050 and then 11 billion by the end of the century. So you, whatever, whatever our sustainable footprint now is, we're going to be revising it down for you know, the rest of the century. And just to put that into perspective, how long ago did we introduce plastic microbeads into, into personal care and, and products? And we already had to ban them because they're, they're, we're, the lakes are filling up with them. I mean, any, anyone could have told you this was a stupid idea. Plastic microbeads that just go down the drain and into the nearest, uh, the nearest uh, aquatic ecosystem. And the the other the other one that just blows my mind is these little single use coffee things. Oh, yeah. call, those little cups, those little plastic cups. They're like little tetra packs or something. There's at least a dozen people listening right now that are drinking that. Yeah, yeah. Well, stop. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I'm not saying don't insult it. I'm just saying no. Like, but the, I, despise, that funny? That's I despise those things. I have to say. But not, how long how long have we even been making them? And already we've produced enough of them that that if we could even put those little things end to end, they'd circle the globe a few times. And that's just one little consumer product for one one item. Admittedly, it's coffee, uh, and the and and plastic microbeads. Like seriously, in in the brief amount of time those things have existed, they're already a sizable impact on the world. And yeah, just 
individually, it might not seem like much, but there's a lot of us and we are essentially indistinguishable from the effects of, you know, an asteroid strike or a super volcano. So, I, you know, I think it's important uh, in terms of what you're saying, Kevin, to we need to zoom out, right? It's the zoom out and look at, you know, that we're unable as a species or an unwilling in some cases to uh, understand the consequences of human activity as it's being carried forward. However, we also need to zoom in and say it's not just about re- rebalance the rebalancing of nature in terms of who's paying the price, right? And this is this is the thing that troubled me most. And I think you know we want to we want to move forward because there's a lot of other things to talk about with Ebola, though. Like I I lived and worked in Sierra Leone for a number of years, and the loss of life of those individuals who will never you know see through their potential in the future. Um, it's unfair. It's disproportionate. It. And a lot of the activity ultimately that is destructive, it's not coming from the people of Sierra Leone or West Africa. It's coming from countries like Canada and the U.S. and others. So I think as we zoom, we need to zoom out and then we need to zoom back in. And I'm not saying that either of you were, were speaking contrary to that. But I think um, when we look at us as a, a species that's ravaging the planet, then we need to zoom back in and say, well, who's bearing responsibility? Oh, absolutely. And, and with China, cities in China, uh, lining up to issue red alerts for smog, uh, which which is the, the smog in China and and uh, India and places in India right now is actually fatal. Uh, people can't live under that. And what where is that smog coming from? It's factories that are producing goods that we're buying. Mm. You know, we've 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 exported our pollution. Uh, you know, when you know it's 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 wonderful to hear, and by wonderful. <laughs> I mean, aggravating as hell to hear people going on and on about our, our, the size of our carbon footprint being like, you know, only 2%. Uh, so, you know, we, we don't need to do anything about that. And China, China should do something about that. I mean, well, yeah, right. Who, who are they producing for? Close all borders and stop all trade and then do that measurement again. And let's find out how big their footprint is. <laughs> exactly. And, and the thing is, it's, it's also just so smug of people to suddenly, suddenly we're a line on a map. We're not individuals. We're a line on a map and it's Canada only produces 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions. But individually, we're, um, we're always listed as the first or the, the, the top one or two uh, per capita consumers of energy on Earth. And so what you're really saying is, well, just because of where I popped out of my mommy's womb, I'm entitled to a much, <laughs> a much larger footprint than all of you people in China, where now, you know, if you, it, it's just, if, if you zoom in and you look at that as an act of individual responsibility, that just does not pass the smell test under any circumstances. So speaking of manufacturer uh, products now, uh, I'll move on to two other things. We're keeping the same theme. I'm just throwing some new meat into the pile to be chewed upon. Uh, was another uh, big I'm a thing. vegetarian. I was just going to say, I'm waiting metaphor. for it. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> metaphor. Celery, Kevin. Celery. No, I just, I, I'm just saying I can't help. Okay. Uh, is, <laughs> so consumer products. Uh, one of the other things that happened this year, so uh, drones have been a lot in the, uh, lot in the news this year. And the, the piece specifically that was flagged by Scientific American uh, was that the FAA formally decreed that drone pilots, even hobbyists, are aviators and must accept all the rights and responsibilities that come with this designation. So uh, the, the news specifically, not so important, what my, my point was largely about referencing this was that, you know, one of the other things about the changing sort of world that we live in that will have really big impacts on our ability to be to live our lives and the type of world that we live in is that, you know, it's generally been a historical fact until very recently that uh, tools and and the ability to create tools and to use things that will give 
power have generally been very easy to control. So for instance, swords. Uh, it took you know a, a, a knight or a king or somebody with a vast amount of property to even be able to hire, you know, get people to, to do this for them. And to be able to do it on a large scale to become any sort of military force was quite the endeavor and required quite a bit of, you know, you couldn't just sort of uh, oh, well, let's fight back against the king and, you know, everyone didn't have a sword lying around, right? So this, the, the means of production of tools, whether they be weapons or implements or, or farm tools or whatever they might be, uh, has been very easy to sort of control and court on. And we now, uh, with the example of the uh, drones and things like 3D printers and laser cutters and all sorts of things, uh, I mean, I watched a, a YouTube video uh, a little while ago where a young man with the guidance of his father, but a, a young man who looks under the age of 15, I would say, if I had to guess, he was probably about 13, 14, if I had to guess, uh, had successfully mounted a nine millimeter pistol on top of a four prop drone. Uh, and it was actually very impressive because they managed to, um, the, the young man and his father had managed to design this in a way that it actually accounted for the kickback. So the, the gun was actually able to be remotely fired from a cell phone. Uh, and the and the drone continued to fly. So this was a, a completely functional drone-operated, uh, homemade, uh, armed drone. And so, I mean, we live in a world now where, yes, you know, the the uh, militarization of, of police is, is excessive and, and many people's comments, depending on where you live, to varying degrees about the idea about living in a police state is, you know, can be to varying degrees of true, uh, depending on where in the world you live. Um, but it can't be denied that the ability to keep a control on, on technology that could threaten power, whoever's power that might be, is now incredibly hard to control. Uh, and this has this has raised the stakes a little bit because the people that want to maintain control are aware of the fact that they are losing their grip on control in subtle ways. Um, and it's really changing the landscape. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times this year I've heard someone casually reference, you know, armed resistance against the government. And every single one of those cases has been a joke. But the fact is, it's coming up. The idea of conflict with power has is is seems to be a social meme. And it's coming into this way because um, the playing field to a large degree has been leveled as whether you're talking about actual uh, violence or whether you're just talking about being able to, you know, uh, anonymous being able to break into just about anybody's computer or the ability of a nine-year-old or 10-year-old or 15-year-old and his dad to create a drone with a gun on it. <laughs> uh, so I, I will pause there again to, to, to leave into the floor uh, this sort of idea of the leveled playing field of technology and the incredible way in which it's changing uh, the way the world works. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting example because it brings up so many different dimensions, right? Um, one looking at um, what people might call like the decentralization of certain types of power, um, in this case, sort of something that looks a little bit menacing. Um, but also I think the issue around disassociation, right? If we are developing technologies, and I think the drone is a good example, that allow us to be one removed from our action, that, that concerns me um, in terms of how we relate to other human beings and the natural world. So, I mean, we've seen drones being deployed in the militaristic sense um, with a lot of condemnation from a human rights point of view in terms of what, what's happening in the Middle East. Um, but we're also seeing the accessibility of drones um, to a generation that has also grown up playing video games, which is another form of disassociation, you could argue. Um, I don't know how far down that rabbit hole we want to go, but I think that scares me when um, you remove that direct interaction. I think technology can have the opposite effect. I think it can be connecting from a humanistic point of view with, with the people and planet. But this, this 
uh, scares me quite a bit. And I don't know what you think about that, Kevin, in terms of what does it mean? We're talking about being trying to be more connected with our natural world, but yet what, what do technologies like drones have, like how do they impact um, that kind of uh, sensibility? Ooh. <laughs> do you want to go there? You know, I was yeah, going to say, let's just, go to our resident old man to talk about technology. <laughs> yeah, to talk about, dude, what's this, what, what are all these lights and buttons in here doing? <laughs> I'm just so confused. Everything's blinking at me. Yeah, well, obviously the, 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 the pace and change of technology has been, uh, I mean, God, I was in high school when the first pocket calculator came out. So I've seen this happen. And I grew up reading science fiction. So I wondered about the, the brave new world we were headed for. And uh, I, I got to see a lot of it happen, really. I mean, I remember watching the first moon landing on television. And uh, the, with regards to the drones, it's interesting. Yeah, that's a very that's, – that's by definition going to be a disruptive technology on, on every front. And I remember I, the Greeks – the ancient Greeks used to think archery was dishonorable combat. Because if you were going to run a, run a man through, you, you had to be holding the sword and looking him in the eye basically when you did it. Uh, of course, the, the phenomenal – uh, tactical advantage of archery just changed that conversation very quickly. You, you, on, honor. There's no, there's just no room for honor when people can wipe you out uh, casually uh, with very minimal effort from a great distance, and that kind of sums up drone technology nicely. And and I agree, it's um, it is it is very dissociative, and there's there's uh, I, I think in general, and if you read the accounts of some of the people who fly these drones, they. They, they do find it a very dis, sort of dissociating experience and they, they have mm-hmm. they have a great deal of trouble with this and I, I, you know on the same on the, on the same note e- Elon Musk was recently awarded I forget by whom now but somebody awarded him the Luddite of the year award for his uh, this is Elon Musk mind you right the, the guy that uh, <laughs> is you know patented uh, uh, batteries for electric cars and he just uh, his company just landed a rocket on its tail for the first time in history which is no small no mean engineering feat. Uh, and he was awarded Luddite of the Year for his fears of artificial intelligence, and I could—I just could not agree more. The, um, and I don't want to go into that, but it, for people who like to throw the the anti-technology slur out there, Luddite—you know—if you're just like all technology is good, it's all progress, don't you know? All new, all new technology is progress, and progress is always going forward. And going back to anything, even if it's a better way, that's going backwards. That's a lack of progress. And th- these are some really ridiculous and uncritical tropes that have gotten into our, our uh, dominant discourse. But the Luddites, as far as I know, were not at all opposed to technology. They were, they were destroying automatic looms that were putting them out of business. These were weavers destroying machines that were, that were making them destitute, unemployable and destitute. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you, how do you argue against that? That's not, it's not, it's not even a fear of technology and that's still a legitimate fear of technology. And we were talking about this before the show. Mm. People are being increasingly put out of work by, by automation. And yet we're not, we're not sharing in the gains that we're making in productivity and efficiency and wealth uh, that are being derived through technology. The people who own the technology uh, own that work product and people are being put out of work. To you know, so in that in that sense, you know, call me a Luddite absolutely any day of the week, and I'm by no no means against technology. I'm just I'm just much more for uh, a sane society that that includes uh, you know human values. Well, and and one of the and just a brief comment that actually I'll, I'm going to go back to to Emmy uh, on that, but kind of the idea too, like you know, people will say. Um, how dangerous it might be. And it's, 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 it's an oft, uh, sort of, um, 
theme in science fiction to to do stories. Uh, I've been rewatching because it's slowed down over the holidays. A bunch of old St- uh, Star Trek Next Generation episodes, <laughs> and it's a very common theme in in science fiction to have this idea of well, you know. Uh, you know, if, if somebody brought technology back from the future, that could be very dangerous because, you know, it's so powerful and society hasn't adapted to integrate it properly that, you know, it, it's that the, the person using it couldn't possibly understand the implications of the technology they're using or wh- what effect it might have because they haven't sort of grown up with it. They don't fully understand, blah, 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 you know, this. So it's very dangerous to give people technology that's that's beyond their ability to comprehend the impacts of using it. Um and but what we're looking at here as well on this earth is that we're looking at a world where there is is such disparity between the the prime of the first world nations and the disparity of uh, the disparity of despair in some of the most impoverished uh, that you might as well have a 200 year gap. You know, if we were all part of one society, there would there would be somewhere near 150 and 200 year gap uh, between these societies if if they if we didn't have sort of a an imbalanced system and and just as far as not as far as intelligence or thought, but uh, as far as the the uh, types of tools that they have available. So when you take somebody who, for instance, you know, let's touch briefly on uh, international terror, which was another sort of theme of this year, was uh, you know ISIL and whatever, blah blah blah. Uh, is that you know if you're you're taking someone who's you know very angry for a bunch of reasons and maybe they're crazy I'm not going to try and you know put my thoughts into why those people do those things but if you take somebody who's not terribly well educated which the majority of them aren't um, and give them something like say maybe nuclear technology um, they're not going to understand what they're going to do when they maybe think oh this is a great idea let's try and smuggle a suitcase bomb to the U S right so they might be haha we'll stick it to the Americans but. The global catastrophe that that could set off, like a bunch of dead man switches in Russia, or like whatever, like you, it's 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 someone using technology that they have no comprehension of the sort of bigger picture here, um, and this sort of to me, I would submit, is yet another. Uh, example of the fact that we can't have this big a gap in our planet when we all live on the same Earth, uh, and and I make that as a very roundabout case for. Uh, yet again, coming back to the thing that we need to start thinking as a planet and and bring and maybe lowering down the first world's advances a little bit to catch the rest of the world up because that disparity is one of the greatest causes of one of uh, of social unrest and violence uh, that exists and we could solve it really easily if half of the world wasn't desperately poor a quarter of the world was somewhat you know poor and a very small portion of people uh, have almost all of the resources. I don't know if, if that's what keeps me up at night in terms of um, the the consequences of exposing people that perhaps haven't had access to technology, some dangerous, um, and, and not knowing how to handle it. I think – I'd say that's true across the board actually. I think um, as, a, as a global society or societies, we all are not – able to project forward enough to understand the full consequences of all these technologies that have been deployed that that scares me universally oh and uh, sorry i just want to clarify yeah. I, and i didn't just mean you know nukes getting into the hands of ISIL. i also mean we don't yet understand the implications of using drones even like, sure yeah totally so we're in agreement there um but I think also um, we're seeing on the f- on the flip side of that, I think the example that's always sort of held up is the fact that um, a very significant portion of the world kind of s- skipped the landline uh, generation and went straight to cell phones. And so you have these really nice examples, just to inject a little positivity, of, you know, um, cell phones being charged from solar panels in a remote village, you know, 
somewhere. And so I think, you know, we can derive a lot of benefits uh, from technology, but I do agree that um, there's both opportunity to have technology technology be an equalizing factor, but I agree with you, Darren, that that's not the general trend. So we, we need to do something to rebalance things, as you're saying, in terms of um, looking at how technology can be more equalizing and how it's not just, as, as Kevin's saying, full steam ahead, all things tech are good. Um, and if you have anything around you know, managing the risk that, that you are seen as a regressive factor in our society, we need to, we need to change that kind of outlook. Mm-hmm. So my, my prescription for that one before moving on would simply be that, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that we should slow down technological advance necessarily. What I'm saying is that uh, the, uh, is essentially is that technology is, is uh, what is researched and what is de- developed is directed currently by capitalist markets. And those capitalist markets are designing and developing technology for the convenience and entertainment needs of a very small portion of the planet. And that not that we should stop doing that research, but that let's decide that, hey, we've got some global problems. How about we direct resources into solving those problems before we figure out how to make an iPhone 7? Like those priorities, uh, iPhone 6 will do for three years, I swear. Um, <laughs> it, how about we spend five minutes, you know, feeding people or something? Like, you know what I mean? Like we just, it, it, the imbalance is getting so ridiculous um, that it's now almost trivial if we if we didn't have to worry about who was going to pay for it. And oh, I know somebody is there freaking out that's the entire point we're going to get to that how to pay for it in a second but if we you know if you forget the how to pay for it for a second we could solve a lot of these problems very very quickly i've always thought we need an office of emerging technology in government and and it needs to be staffed by you know uh really really highly caffeinated science fiction fans uh, staying up all night. You mean like us right now? <laughs> yeah, like pretty much all of us. Like, yeah, it's true. I am. I am quite quite highly caffeinated at the moment too. But but I mean, if you read about, I mean, if you want to have a sleepless night, I can I can give you some things to Google. Um, <laughs> He's not uh, lying, folks. No, I'm not. A, a, a CRISPR, which is C R I S P R. CRISPR. It's a new. It is it is a quantum leap forward in our ability to edit genes. And, and people are talking about all kinds of stuff now, like um, pushing changes, genetic changes through entire wild populations of things like mosquitoes, because let's admit it, they, they're a disease vector. Um, they bring things like malaria. Malaria is a scourge, without a doubt, in countries that, that suffer from it. But they also carry, if I'm not mistaken, uh, dengue fever and, oh, God, I can never pronounce this, chicken gun. Oh, I'm not even going to try it. Uh, it's another, it's, if anyone can pronounce that, please, yeah. please let me know. Um, and you know I, that's where you know that's where the ethical rubber meets the road is when you're you're in any country that is is suffering the scourge of malaria and you're saying well hey let, why not let's let's drive some genetic change to the population of mosquitoes and and rid ourselves of this but it's always the the law of unintended consequences and uh, you know Google DARPA go just go to DARPA's website and see the kinds of things they're experimenting with and uh, there was another one uh, so CRISPR DARPA. Um, Oh, it got away from me now, but, but, uh, uh, oh, oh, people are, people are trying to, uh, there's active research into how to build artificial wombs 
think about that for a minute. You know, there's, there's, I mean, all of these things can have unintended consequences and it just goes like ever since the the cold war, we've been arguing with ourselves or debating, you know, is wisdom evolving as quickly as technology? And of course it isn't. Yeah. I'd say the, it's conclusively no. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't see a problem. I actually see a need, a real need for there to be a government office staffed with, without a doubt, caffeinated sci-fi freaks and, and also ethicists, bioethicists, yeah. uh, all manner of people that are sort of thinking about these things because we simply do not need to rush every new thing into the marketplace the moment every new chemical. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a no-stick pan. It must be better. Many years later, you discover your body's full of Teflon. Uh, you know, all these things just simply do not need to be rushed into the marketplace. Every new technology is not some so, some shiny new thing that makes life better. These things need to be considered, and 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 uh, uh, we just need to bring more deliberation to this. Yeah, uh, because of the uh, non-traditional uh, format of the show, I have completely left reckless abandon as to what time it is. So we're we're a bit overdue for a music break. Uh, just before we go to our music break, though, I'll say if you want to apply for that office, you just need to uh, send in 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 two hundred words or less why Star Wars or uh, Star Trek is better, uh, and your most three, uh, most recent three uh, pieces of fan fiction uh, to apply for that office. Uh, you're listening to. Uh, it might surprise you today if you might, other than maybe recognizing the voices. But this is in fact the Green Majority. You are listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. We're going to be back with our lackadaisical uh, sort of rambling discussion about uh, the world that is 2015 here on this week's uh, Christmas Day show. So, Kevin Farmer, please uh, spin us some beats, and we will be right back. Do you think I really abused you? On reflection now, it doesn't matter. How, How can, can you say I'm made to? I'm made to. 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 i Changing times, watching the signs. How could you see in me what you want me to be? Now, on reflection, what should change? All around, 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 all around. I think that's a good spot to come back in. Thank you very much, Kevin. So uh, you're listening here to the Green Majority here on CIUT on our very abnormal holiday show. Today is Christmas Day as we're broadcasting live uh, from Hart House uh, because none of the three of us have anywhere we needed to be, apparently. Um, <laughs> uh, and so as, a, as we do, if you're just tuning in here, the, again, that we are the Green Majority. And what we're doing this week is uh, just sort of taking a very relaxed attitude to the whole thing and kind of looking back uh, a little bit and then... Uh, 
uh, I will be replaced by Stefan next week, and uh, Ma and Ste- uh, Kevin Walsh will be here, and they'll be doing a bit more of a uh, specific sort of look forward. So this is sort of a contemplative look back. Next week will be a bit of a contemplative look forward. But what we're doing at the moment, kind of, is going uh, is I'm, I'm making a bit of a case, I guess, here using um, some top ten lists. I actually haven't veered, uh, veered very far from the Scientific American one just yet because there's so much goodness in here uh, about things that happened this year and, and sort of what might be what might be uh, assessed from it, what might be pondered by it. Uh, Kevin, I just wanted to let you know I wasn't going to get back into it here, but on this very list, I hadn't scrolled down far enough, but uh, number two on this list is actually the CRISPR revolution gains momentum. So <laughs> you, you picked it well on that one. What I wanted to come to really quickly, though, of course, was um, – so, of course, you know, we talk all the time about climate change. So climate change is another sort of example of a global problem to which we that that demands a global solution. Uh, we attempted to and may or may not have gotten one. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about what happened uh, uh, at COP, but rather what's sort of what's going to be happening from what the agreement that happened in, in COP. Uh, later in the later in January, once we actually see what begins to happen as, as people's gears start to grind on that. But while we're doing this um, piece, the last thing I wanted to come to before I got to my yes, okay, but how do you implement all these crazy ideas part, which will come up in just a moment, I wanted to mention the very last one, which was I sort of touched on it a minute with the technology, but I think it's specific enough that it deserves the direct and specific separate attention, which is uh, data security. Uh, the idea, and this is something about which uh, Kevin, I'm sure, will have a comment as well. This is a, a topic of which he's at least somewhat familiar uh, and has a bit of expertise in, at least uh, generally speaking. Um, and the idea here essentially is that they're basically everything. I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know, but just for the sake of setting out my case, almost everything now is computerized, right? Chips in your car. There are chips in people's shoes. Uh, RFID tags are automatically telling machines how to do things. Every, almost everything in our life has computers in it, and if it doesn't yet, it will soon, uh, including your pants and shirts, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, I'm not pulling these out of my hat, as it were. These are all things that are about to be computerized or in some way have computer chips put in them. And this has meant that when we're talking about security, um, it's increasingly getting distorted about, well, what do we mean by that? Uh, physical security is less and less important. And rising is the age of cyber security. And one of the things that we've noticed from this um, is that agencies like Anonymous, for instance, uh, amorphous hacker groups, uh, and just r- random vigilantes and whoever else, basically any 14-year-old that grew up with a laptop, um, can now exact some pretty severe damage with at least a partial hope of being able to stay anonymous while doing it and not getting caught. Uh, It's created an entirely new um, way in which we need to think about our safety, Uh, whether we're talking about our physical safety because somebody theoretically could hack into your car. Um, Some claim that this has already happened. Um, Anywhere all the way down to somebody stealing your personal identifying information. And again, this is something that is a problem because uh, it's essentially a dis- distortion of power, and it's a way for people to sort of take some of that power uh, back. And so it's become the Internet and uh, specifically breaking security has become some of the sort of favorite mischievous pastime of a lot of people because it's a, it's a very easy way to cause a lot of damage from the safety and security of your own uh, home, and it, and it really is changing the world in which we live in, especially when we tie this back to things like automated weapon systems. 
which could be hacked. So I'll, I'll, I'll tie this up with a nice little bow afterwards, but I'll go now to MA first for, for comment about that. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of something um, that's accelerating um, with, that, and is complex. Uh, especially, it's really interesting because a lot of us might initially perceive um, actions by groups like Anonymous as a kind of rebalancing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may not you may not be fully comfortable with it. You may not 100% agree with everything they do or their position, but you see them trying to address perhaps misju- miscarriages of justice or things like that, or rebalance uh, control away from uh, you know the state or that kind of thing. But it's a complex ethical challenge. Let me put it that way, because if you were deemed by any sort of hacker group to to have done some sort of wrongdoing um, and there was no sort of due process before um, something from your personal data was obtained and made public you probably wouldn't be, feel that positive about that action. So I think it's a, I think it is a very complex thing for us to consider. Personally, I think we need to see a lot more movement in terms of people citizens um, owning their own data. Not corporation, not government, being the first line in terms of deciding what is done with their data. Um, and the same goes for communities. And there's there's some interesting sort of movements around data issues as they apply to technology. And technology certainly has confronting us with these data issues, but they've been, they've been going on for some time. And um, there's an indigenous... Uh, um, term called OCAP, which is Ownership, Control, Access, and Possession. And and it was raised, I believe, first and foremost by actually a a nurse in New Zealand. Um, And it's certainly been incorporated into frameworks here in Canada, which is Indigenous people do not want to be studied and have their data taken away. They want to own their own data. They want to decide what's done with it. And I just think it's a really important example of positive trends around data ownership and something that I think that non-Indigenous populations should learn about and be educated because we, as as people in this ever-changing world, need to start being a lot more aware and, and seeking to have better ownership over our own data. Mm-hmm. Kevin, uh, I'll go to you for a comment before I tie this up with a bow. Oh, just could not agree more with that. <laughs> people, people, I think, I think your data is yours by definition, your personal and the people who are all excited about this internet of things that Darren uh, alluded to, it's, it's being referred what, what you alluded to is being referred to as the internet of things. And, and we're talking about billions upon billions of devices, your fridge connected, you know, to to the internet, essentially. And the people who are really excited about these technologies tend to be the data miners, you know, the companies like Google that just want to know everything about you. And it might be very exciting to have your fridge let you know when your mushrooms are getting old and uh, and telling you what should be on your next shopping list. And actually, hey, let's just print that for you or even just alert the store to see that they order what you need. And, and these things, these sort of like, I don't know, kind of like these technological utopias that we think we're, we're headed for. They're, they're, just, they're just too easily exploitable. And uh, the, the one that comes back time and time again is, you know, should we make voting online? Should we do that online? Mm. I can't imagine anything worse than that. <laughs> you know, there, it just goes without saying that there, nothing online will ever be perfectly secure. It just won't be. And we didn't need 
uh, we didn't need online voting to hijack a recent election here in Canada. We just needed phones, right, with the robocalls. Uh, to, to put something like that online just strikes me as orders of magnitude less secure. You, you could possibly hijack an election and not even leave a trace or at least disrupt it so thoroughly or taint it with, with an air of illegitimacy. And the thought of people... I mean, one, again, it dis- disconnects people even more because there is something to be said for the act of going out and voting. It's a, it's, it is a form of community participation, such as it is. And the thought of people being at home, perhaps having their vote dictated to them uh, by some coercive uh, guardian, uh, Reed Mann, um, it, it also strikes me as just an incredibly bad idea. And again, it's just one of these things where everyone's like, oh, no, it's better. Everything's better. It's the magpie reflex. It's, mm-hmm. If it's shiny and new, it just must be better. And technolo- all technology just must be better. And, and I think with the Internet of Things and especially, well, actually, no, I'm not even going to qualify that. With online voting and the Internet of Things, again, the, the precautionary principle uh, needs, to, needs, to, uh, needs to rule the day. All right, so we're running down to about oh man, we've only got about fifteen minutes left. So here's what I like to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention one thing really quickly. Let's take a very short music break, and then we'll we'll come back and have sort of closing comments on that. How's that work, Kevin? Sure. So if anyone's curious about the first song, as the resident old man, uh, <laughs> when when Darren said the show would be about reflection, I I remember to have my iPod, it's a piece of technology, um, and that was <laughs> hypocrite. <laughs> no, I'm just just yeah. I'm, I'm, anyway, <laughs> um, that was that was from. That was a band called the Gen- Gentle Giant, and that was their song on reflection. I'm pretty sure that was written back in the 70s, which which was a thing. Um, and the 70s, yeah, the 70s were a thing. It, even though, even though I'm, I'm sure they weren't referred to once by the Simpsons. Um, and actually, this song I'm throwing, I'm covering a lot of uh, time here at the studio over the holidays because it, it's uh, it's an army of volunteers, folks, and uh, we most and even we we take vacations every so often. So I'm covering a lot of time, and next week. New Year's Day from uh, four till five, I'm doing an interview with a very talented musician who's a very old friend of mine called Lily Mason, and this is one of her songs.
We are back. We cut that one a little bit short here because we're running tight on time because I apparently do not know how to talk less. Uh, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT on our very relaxed holiday show. Uh, I'm going to mention one very, very quickly last thing, and then we'll, we'll go into our final closing comments about uh, my conclusion, where I was going with this whole thing. Uh, so the very last thing was, uh, you know, Kevin mentioned briefly earlier there, we have uh, uh, SpaceX um, relanding uh, rockets for reusable things and all sorts of space exploration. We found uh, potential water or I forget if we actually did for sure find water or if there's just a very strong indicator of water on Mars, uh, all sorts of water and potentially planets hovering around the habitable zone in other places. Um, you know, whether or not this means that we will find life, it does uh, open a much more assuredly another option, which is the possibility and impending inevitability in my you know, opinion uh, of the possibility of not just leaving, but colonizing uh, places other than this earth, or at the very least for now, creating temporary habitats in places other than this planet. And the, the reason I wanted to mention that one last to sort of tie this together, what I wanted to tie it together with was the idea that whether we're talking about uh, disparity when it comes to the application access or use or development of technology, uh, whether we're talking about uh, any of those words I just mentioned with relation to food or to uh, just general wealth, uh, uh, the idea that, you know, because we now live on a globalized planet, the idea that, you know, one country should be really uh, have really poor uh, health care and be really overcrowded and have a lot of sick people that then, you know, creates a breeding ground for disease that then spreads some horrible new disease or some we thought we took care of it old disease, you know, all the way around the planet and creates a serious global, you know, danger impacting not just that area, but lots of people's lives, uh, you know, not to mention the theme of this show half the time, climate change, uh, which is a series of global problems that are urging for global solutions. They require solutions that are global because they are global solutions that affect all of us. It's not just does it sound nice to say that and it seem equitable, but I, I would submit that it is required. We will not solve these problems unless we make a global effort of them. Um, and so this begs the question now, well, how are you going to pay for all this fantastic stuff? How are we going to pay to bring the uh, uh, poorer parts of the world up to the standard of the first world? How are you going to pay to give away all this technology? How are you going to pay uh, to get rid of all of this uh, poverty? And, well, part of the answer is that a lot of these problems are artificially created by people's greed and uh, gamed systems that keep these people in place, and that a lot of these people aren't just down, they're being held down uh, by richer nations, by governments such as ours, I'm sorry to tell you, um, in many direct and indirect ways. Um, but that this is a problem that's not because of necessarily evil people being in charge. It's a problem that's, that's systemic, and it's systemic in the sense that things don't happen on Earth right now and have not for quite some time uh, unless someone can profit off of them. And it does not matter if we're talking about war. It does not matter if we're talking about saving people's lives with drugs. It does not matter what we talk about nary at all, I would submit. If somebody can't profit, it won't happen, apparently, unless we're talking about extremely minute personal exchanges like, you know, me am I, me buying you an apple. And for me, I would submit that the profit there is is the uh, your joy in receiving the apple would, would benefit me. So my case stands, if you admit that. So what I wanted to bring this to is we have a whole bunch of global problems, so I submit, that we cannot solve without looking at them globally, and that profit... And the need to profit, the things not being able to happen without profit, is the number one thing stopping us from do this. So I submit that I've now made my case, and I will go to comment to, for MA and then to Kevin, um, 
is it time? Can we, should we, and nay, do we have to have a conversation globally? Let's sit down and have a little wee chat about whether or not the idea that things can only happen if someone can profit off them is the ruling governing law of our planet. So what I fundamentally believe is that we shouldn't do anything or suggest a course of action that removes um, people's incentives to contribute in an entrepreneurial way to their their well-being and happiness. So one of these sort of counter-arguments um, to your position, Darren, is, you know, um, that you're taking away people's personal motivations to innovate and do things that are going to increase their well-being. And I think that's a, that is a misconception. And it, what we need to change is actually how we think about what makes us happy and what well-being is. It's not that we can't um, be entrepreneurial and make stuff and sell stuff, but the terms and the and the motivation for doing so does need to shift um, from a global perspective. So here we are talking about this on what is for many people a family holiday, but also one of the most commercial holidays of the year, where we go out and we buy a whole load of stuff for everybody that we know. Some of us do that, not all of us. But we need to change our conception of what we think others need and what we think we need. Um, and then if we do that, we will also change some of our behavioral patterns. I'm not a person that likes to talk about individual behavioral change. I'm much more focused on what governments ought to be doing to address big picture issues like climate change and how we as engaged citizens need to be pressuring them and also, you know, building grassroots movements, et cetera, et cetera. But I really think that sometimes it is important to think about individual action and think about what we're willing to let go of that actually won't change our level of happiness. We may think it will initially, but it won't. And then the other thing I also want to bring in is like more holistic concepts of well-being. So if you start looking at what makes us happy and what we want to derive out of life, yes, there's some very essential things that a lot of the, the population is deprived of, and we need to address that. We also need to look at the other things that contribute to people's happiness, which is a sense of community and a connection with the natural world. And one, I'm just going to conclude by making one point about these expeditions to Mars and colonizing other planets. Like, I don't want to crush anyone's sense of exploration, the spirit of exploration, which is part of being human, I think. But I just find it so completely ironic that if you go and say, let's go stand in the field outside, outside of where we are, the heart house, it's such a marvel. All these things that we are pouring millions, perhaps billions of dollars in terms of looking at how we could potentially recreate that square of field on another planet, terraform it. And we have it. We have it right here. The the miracle of our pl own planet, every corner of our planet, and that yet we would strive to just do a little piece of that um, somewhere else is, I think, quite ironic. So I'll end there. <laughs> I call that the because I can attitude, which is actually just a rephrase of what Kevin was saying earlier. But Kevin, go ahead. Yeah, once again, could not agree more. And uh, you reminded me of my other uh, Googleable sleepless night. <laughs> Google the Fermi paradox. And uh, ooh, nice one. It, it is a good one because if it turns out that life is essentially inevitable uh, on planets such as Earth that just have the right conditions, then the question is, well, why don't we see any of it? And it, it's just a, it's a it's a good brain teaser. It's like why why you know if life is inevitable, why don't we see intelligent life in the universe? Um, 
And the other thing that you touched on that I think we really ought to follow up with on this show at some point in time is this notion of endless profit. What, what, I, I don't know in what closed system the, the participants can endlessly profit from each other uh, in any way that makes sense according to the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, there's tremendous wealth disparity in this country and on this planet. But the simple fact of the matter is if we could get over that, we can provide all for all of our primary needs. We can provide for all of our secondary needs. We just don't need to keep tearing this planet apart for new cell phones. Uh, I'm sorry to have to do this on air, Kevin, but I have two, I'm looking at two very disparate times here between my two different timepieces. Can you let me know how much time we've got left, please? Well, um, that's, yeah, that's been a recurring problem lately. Um, I give us about three minutes to ask Three you. minutes. Okay. Cause I had three minutes and eight minutes and uh, okay. I just wanted to check. Thank you. Oh, I thought you were going to be very sort of metaphysical and say, how much time do we have left? Kevin. Yes, Kevin Farmer. How much time do we have left? <laughs> I actually, I, I, I bit on this my, planet before we have to move to Mars. <laughs> I bit my tongue on that. To be honest with you, I just totally bit my tongue. Uh, so okay, so the the final the 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 last thing um, uh, that I I wanted to sort of get at with that, and and I I I think I I explained it accurately what I meant, but I don't I I think I can do a bit better as far as what I was getting at there, and and thank you. I think Ma and Kevin both picked up on it. What I did and didn't mean by that correctly, which is the idea that yes, the the reason capitalism works. Uh, for an extent, is an, it's an incentive system, um, and I think it's an it's an incentive system that reward, uh, as you say, very very accurately, it rewards uh, effort and innovation and entrepreneurialism, and those are how many of our problems are solved. And so, those are good things. We want those things. Um, w- and so taking that type of system away is, of course, not what I was suggesting. And I, and I know that you weren't implying that I was. Um, but just for sort of for clarity of sort of the listener, what I'm saying here was that those things are good things, but why don't we find a way to substitute money? Now, the reason I'm saying that is very specific um, is because, you know, if you look, think back to the beginning of this episode, uh, what we're talking about is that, you know, essentially um, technology in a, in a variety of ways is – making uh, our traditional system obsolete. It's meaning that, you know, almost all jobs, Kevin mentioned before we even got started, the idea that most sports writing or, or some sports writing anyway is done by uh, AI programs. Uh, robotics and cybernetics are replacing uh, all types of jobs. I mean, jobs are flooding out of the market because of technology way faster than we're creating them, uh, even if the population wasn't growing. Uh, so this is this is a problem which is bad and is going to continue to get worse. And it's only a problem if we have to find a way to employ these people. Um, I submit that we have now reached a level of technology where we don't need to do that. We can, if we did, if we took away the idea that someone has to make a buck here, uh, we can provide for all the basic needs of all of the people on this planet. Now you would say, okay, but well, why would we do that? Because then you take away the profit incentive. Well, you don't need to profit. <laughs> those people don't need jobs if their needs are taken for, right? So what we're talking about here, and, and I'm not submitting that I have the plan about how to do this. I'm submitting that we should at least admit that we can ha- we're allowed to have this conversation and that it is a rational conversation to have, that maybe there's another way that we can go about doing this because the idea of exchange for labor to meet needs is no longer relevant on a world where we can meet all of our needs. So let's have a think this Christmas break. What would you do to make the world a better place if we didn't have to worry about money? That's my final thought for this week. Good, Have a good green week, folks. We'll be back. Same team, but instead of me, you'll be Stefan next week for New Year's Day show. And then after that, we're going to have some new co-hosts. That's really excited. I'm looking forward to it. Have a good green week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon. 